This is Unaided, the brand building podcast brought to you by Leakside, a team snap company. Get ready to learn about brand marketing strategy from the experts. Here's your host, Evan Brandoff. Hello and welcome to the Win Grin Podcast. Today's show, we have Mike Rideout. Not only has Mike had an extremely impressive career in sales and entrepreneurship, starting his own company to specifically support young men, but he is also such an incredible coach and mentor and parent to his kids and his kids' peers. And so excited to have him on to talk about leadership, coaching, sales, and so much more. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thank you, Evan. I'm thrilled to be here. Anything I can do for you, my friend, no doubt about it. Congrats on your marriage. I'm very happy for you. Thank you so much. Mike, we've known each other for almost five, six years now. And something that I've always admired so much about you is how good of a parent you are and how good of a coach you are to not only your kids, but I know your kids' teammates as well. And I want to start by going back to teenage Mike. What was teenage Mike like? Teenage Mike. So one of the, it's interesting. I grew up with a best friend. We were inseparable starting at three years old. And he was the absolute best athlete. Still to this day, I've maybe ever met. Also extremely good looking. He was just the star of the town. The kind Mm -hmm. of kid who was the kicker, the punter, the kick returner, and the punt returner, and the quarterback, and the, you know, and so I think teenage Mike had to find his own way and became more involved in student politics. I was definitely looking for attention, and I was vice president of the junior class, and then I was student body president, and always an average athlete. I think I could have been better had I didn't, wasn't in his shadow. But I was trying to make my mark and trying to escape the neighborhood I was grew up in, which was low income projects. And, and I had a mom who just drilled into me on a day by day basis how I am better than that neighborhood and don't need to end up there. And so that led me to, like I said, being student body president, doing well in class, getting into a private school that I paid for on my own versus wow. going to the state school, you know, that people thought I should have gone to. But it was insecurity and it was also ambition and all kind of mixed up together. Yeah. So you went to private school. What did you study in school? I was an English major. I love to read. I frankly went into as an accounting major. And after my first statistics class, kind of went to the dean's office and said, I'm going to go with English. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and I just realized my brain was not, not kind of math driven. It was much more about literature and writing and so forth. So I was an English major at St. Michael's in Burlington, Vermont. Interesting. I love Burlington. It's beautiful. You've had and continue to have an extremely impressive career in sales and entrepreneurship. How did an English major from a liberal arts school end up going into sales? Unfortunately, I didn't have enough kind of direction as a kid to say, what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. Either from parents. And again, I can't say enough about my mom. I was raised by a single mom, but she wasn't a college graduate. She wasn't, you know, the type of person to say, let's sit down and really map out what you want to do with your life. And so I kind of got that first job out of school in marketing and that one of my former college friends helped me get. And part of that job was to convince schools to let us do some marketing on campus. Your audience 
will probably be aghast by this, but we were selling phone cards for Sprint. So pull up, get that old, uh, you know, and dial in that number and be able to call mom and dad on a phone card, you know, pre-cell phones. And I just was booking so many schools so quickly that everyone in the office, I can remember, just kept telling me, you've got to go into sales. Like this is, you have to be in sales. And you hear it enough. And I said, okay, you know, that makes sense. That's what everyone's telling me. I was very social. And so it kind of made sense. And I went and started applying for sales jobs and got the first one I got. I applied for at a newspaper in Boston, which was the equivalent of the Village Voice. It was called Mm -hmm. the Boston Phoenix. So it was a newspaper that focused on culture and the local bar scene and band music scene and so forth. And and that was the beginning. And now 27 years later, I'm still in sales. I've sold everything from $40 ads to $20 million digital campaigns and wow. everything in between. Yeah. So what's the most exciting deal that you've ever closed? Well, exciting is different than fun, right? So exciting was the $20 million deal between Citibank and Microsoft. And wow. that was exciting because... So at the time, Citibank wanted to create something like PayPal because they had pipes into every bank in America and they thought they could create a payment system. This is early in the days of person-person payments. It took 12, 14 months, SEC lawyers, 125-page contract that we were redlining at midnight. And it culminated in flying to Seattle, having Steve Ballmer come in to the room to sign on our side. And Derek Mon, who was the vice chairman of Citibank at the time, flying in on a private jet with his team. And it was just so impressive with Derek. He came in, he had six or seven lieutenants, and he told them, you sit there, you sit there, you sit there, you sit there, like mapped it all out. And then Steve Ballmer comes in and we go through the final iterations of this deal and sign it right there on the spot. And then I'm back on a plane two hours later, back to New York. It was super thrilling super exciting, something I never expected to be doing. And then a few days later, that deal ended up in A1 of the Wall Street Journal. So we had that framed and put that in our boss's office. And it was really exciting. Maybe the most fun sale I've had, though, is actually recently I started in health benefits. And Mm -hmm. because it was a small business in that I was building my own book, I was actually driving Uber for extra income. And in the back of the One of my riders said, why are you driving Uber? I guess I don't fit the profile of an Uber driver. And and I said, I'm building this small business practice. And he said, wow, well, we actually need to review our benefits. He then left his phone in my car. And two hours later, I realized, maybe it was an hour or so, but drove all the way back to the restaurant he was at, kind of convinced the maitre d' to let me through, and then walked in and, and handed his phone. And he gets up and is hugging me and the whole table's excited because he was miserable. He had lost his phone. And then four days later, we signed as his benefits broker. Wow. He, that, he said, come into my office tomorrow. I brought my team. And he said, you guys will have the same rates as our incumbent, but it's completely clear to me what kind of customer service you're going to provide. So we're going to sign with you. It was pretty amazing. I could pull a deal out of the back of an Uber. And of course, that led to my boss telling me to get off my desk and just start driving Uber all day and try to pull more (laughs) deals. (laughs) But those are the kinds of fun. I've had a few of those kind of fun, unique, out-of-the-box sales deals or, you know, that bring you a lot of satisfaction and a lot of joy. So in your mind... Are you always selling? Like no matter what you're doing, even if you're not actually working, are you always selling? 
I'm always selling something I believe. So okay. it could be now of late, it's my kids' abilities on the pitcher's mound, right? Or it's something I believe in and I'm just passionately conveying that in just natural dialogue. And I'm always trying to convince people to see my side or what the value could be for them, no matter what. Whether it's trying to convince a Yankee fan to become a Red Sox fan or, or whatever it might be, I'm always tough. There's no doubt. And I think you know over the years, I've often talked to people in life who I think could be a great candidate for a league side. And I'll say to them, hey, got to get to know what my friend Evan's doing. And on and on and on until the point where I was like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll take a <laughs> I'm always selling something I believe. And I do get pretty passionate. Yeah. We always appreciate when you yeah. think of us. I'm the guy who thinks sales should be a major in college. Like, you know, like I believe that sales is a craft. It's not something that everyone can do. And I do believe it should be a profession that is, you know, studied and taken on by young professionals without a doubt. What do you think that curriculum would entail? Probably the most important part of sales is knowing as much as possible about the products or services that you're selling and maybe even more than the rest of the company, you know, mm-hmm. and being able to know how operations works and marketing and the development of the products and how the C-suite thinks. So it would be around that. It would obviously be around presentation skills. It would also always be around social cues. Listening is the most important aspect. That's not new. Everyone knows that now. I got my training in sales at at Barron's Magazine in New York. And that's an extremely hard sale because we wouldn't discount. It was a $200 a year for a subscription or to a really thick newspaper with stock tables in it. And yet what we were able to say is that the people who read it never miss, never. They will walk miles to the next door if they have to, to get their copy of Barron's or you'll walk into a store and there'll be a little flag and you try to pick up the copy and they would say, don't you dare touch that. That's Mr. Brandoff's parents. He's going to be here in a few minutes to get it. So I learned that, but I also learned from great, great leaders who said, you know, things like we have two ears and one mouth so we can talk you know, half as much as we listen or listen twice as much as we talk. And I think the key for me has always been to talk to the prospect like they're someone who has a job, who has a family, who has bills to pay, who wants a promotion who wants to go into their boss and say, hey, look, I found the greatest partner to do this, to mm. achieve our objectives. Yeah, I agree. I think that we need to, personal finances should be another Without topic that we educate starting in middle school or high school. Without a doubt. I mean, yeah. especially these days, kids are starting businesses earlier and earlier, but they also don't have any idea how to manage money. It's absolutely true. And then they're going to college or taking on massive debt and they don't know how to structure their finances for the future to be able to set themselves up nicely and also pay off their debt successfully. So yeah, maybe we should start a new university together at some point. Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> I love it. Speaking of starting something. So back in 2009, yeah. you started Made Possible. Can you tell us more about Made Possible? What was the problem you were looking to solve? That was the central theme of my career was I woke up in 1998 on two o'clock in the morning with this big idea that men weren't being served serious journalism. You call it self-help journalism, if you will, Mm -hmm. about how to be better at their lives. 
So the mission of Made Possible is to help all young men maximize their potential across all facets of their lives. And that means a career perspective, relationships, being a dad. The idea was you had all these magazines that marketed $3,000 watches and $2,500 suits and, you know, smutty pictures of women. And it was all about the aspirations of what a young man wants instead of some real grounded advice about how to get there. And, and so Made Possible was going to fill a gap where for 21 to 34 year olds, helping them get real practical advice and cut out all the, the fat that would allow them to follow their career. I mean, follow their, to maximize their lives right out of the gate. It was a deep passion. It took me 10 years to start. I worked on it for 10 years before I went live with it and left my job and took it on full time. It was something I was incredibly passionate about. I worked 20 hours a day on it. Unfortunately, it didn't work. I blame that primarily on the CEO. It was also not a great time. I was really hell-bent on a print model and in 2009, which the economy was tanking and also print was you know, waving goodbye to us for a digital world. But actually, in looking back, I think what really might have actually been its downfall was that I took it on more of a mission than a business. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I made a lot of those mistakes. I would be hung over too often. I would blow my whole weekend because I was sleeping till noon after a party the night before. And I always regretted it, you know, and I was trying to tell stories about, you know, have a beer or two on Friday night, but be get first tracks on the mountain Saturday morning when you're skiing or wake up and hike or do something that or join a team. You know, not enough men, you know, I don't know, adults in general, but I'm just speaking personally, join teams like they did in high school and in college and so forth. And that's what I was trying to help young men do is just really know that they, you know, one of the pieces of research that came out of it was really interesting was we did a lot of research and we found out that in a scenario where five or six guys were in a bar together, four or five of those didn't want to be there, but they felt like they had to because everyone else wanted to. Mm. And that they would rather be getting a good night's sleep and doing something better with their time on Saturday or Sunday morning. But peer pressure led them to doing that, you know, and they always regretted it. And it was just a vicious cycle. So I was trying to give them the freedom to do that. I love that. And it's also in, in our society, if you do want to go out and hang out with people or meet people, what options do you really have on a Friday or Saturday evening other than drinking or eating. You don't. Yeah. You don't. I tell my sons a story a lot about a guy I went to school with at St. Michael's. The first year or two, we thought he was the biggest drunk on campus, you know, because he was out every night. Then I came to find out one day that he was the captain of the lacrosse team. He went to class. He came home and did two or three hours of homework immediately, went to lacrosse practice, was completely done with all of his responsibilities, and then went out almost every night. But he wow. graduated with a 4.0 and it looked, perception was, this guy's never going to make it. Does he made it better than any of us, you know? And that was kind of the lesson I wanted to kind of bring to these, to young men in America. Yeah. The best advice that I got before going to college was if you treat school like a nine to five job, then you could go out and have fun and do everything. Yeah. If you just put your nine to five in, I didn't do that, but it was very good advice in, in hindsight. <laughs> it's amazing the amount of great advice we don't follow, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it takes a while. It takes that you're my age to start to realize uh, what those nuggets were that you really should have followed a lot earlier. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> it's all part of the maturation process. Some of it's quicker than others for that's like Yeah. Exactly. I thought made possible was going to be a revolution. And you know, unfortunately it didn't work, but I believed in it. Yeah. Well, you through made possible, it didn't have the business success that you went to it with, but I'm sure you learned a ton. And I'm sure it hasn't stopped your mission of helping young men. So, you know, since Made Possible, what have you done and how have you contributed your time in order to help young men or, or young people in general? Uh, yeah, it's a succeed? good question. I, you're right. Maybe it was even subconsciously that I continued on that mission because I have done a, a lot of work. Number one, I became, I was on the board of my alma mater at St. Mike's and I did a lot of work there in career development for young students or for students and including I would bring together six, seven professionals in the New York area. I was living in New York at the time into a seminar and fill the room with St. Michael's students in the summer. They were home and allow that to have an interaction between a lawyer and an accountant and a a plumber, all the different things I would bring in and kind of help them see what it was like day to day to do that to those, those jobs. And then connect them, you know, and then allow them to connect with those professionals for development. So I did a lot of that work. I uh, started a golf tournament for the school that raised, you know, about twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year in donations that went into more of that programming. It also went towards financial aid. And I think a big thing that I did focus on there a lot was financial aid because I grew up very poor. And because of financial aid, I was 50 to 75% of my education was paid for And I wanted to be able to help other people in that same situation. So I did a lot of work with the school. I actually ended up being on three charitable boards before I was 30 or so, all focused around trying to give back. You know, it's funny because I think back then I felt lucky that I escaped. As I get older, I realized, no, it wasn't luck. It was my mom, you know, the raising me the way she did, working hard, you know, being ambitious, that kind of thing. So it wasn't as much luck, but I wanted to kind of be a model for other kids that they could do things a lot better than their surroundings. But then maybe the most important work I've done in this area is coaching, right? So I started coaching when my boys were five and just put down my, well, actually take that back. I'm about to start coaching my daughter in basketball in a month, but I finally put my baseball coaching skills down or job down. And I know because they're, look, we, it worked. They're in one of the best baseball high school programs in the state of New York, and I own a prep and they have really professional coaches and it's time for me to get out of the way. But what I loved most about coaching was inspiring all the kids in the team. You said in the beginning, obviously it was for my kids, but every team has 12, 13 kids on it. And my goal was to just inspire them to be better than they thought they were. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's as simple as just giving them better techniques. And once they saw that click, it was everything. It was like, wow, I'm better at this than I really thought I was. And mm-hmm. that comes out on the field, you know, and just extremely positive in the way I coach, but really, and also getting kids to focus on the moment. See what a lot of adults don't realize about young kids in sports is that day's game is the most important thing happening in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. That's their job interview. That's their, wedding day, whatever it is, that is the big thing going on in their life. And so when you know that, you can speak at a more deep level to them and say to them, you know, 
this is an opportunity for you. Remember everything that we've learned. Hustle for that ball. Don't let it drop in front of you, you know, because these moments are fleeting and you don't get these many, this many opportunities mm-hmm. in life to, to play games, to be part of a team, to win a game for your team, whatever it might be. And, you know, I'd say a lot of things like if all of you today do one great thing, we're going to win this game, you know? Yeah. And so then they start to learn that they don't have to do everything right. But if they do one strong thing, maybe it's great, maybe it's very good. The team's eventually most more than likely going to win that game. And I'm now also a private coach as kind of a side gig is I have 10 clients between 10 and 17 who I coach in baseball privately. And in fact, I have two girls now that I coach. And nice. I, those might be my two favorite clients because they're trying to do something that's not ordinary. And there's a real satisfaction to know that I'm helping these girls strike some boys out, you know, <laughs> and, and give them that kind of empowerment. And they're great to coach. They're fantastic listeners. They want to learn. So those are some of the things I do to try to keep up with the Made Possible mission. And then I did do a lot of consulting for startups, for young folks that who are starting a business and trying to give them as much advice as I could and about what I did wrong and what I did right. But yes, those are some of the things. It's still a mission for me, no doubt. And and my two sons, I'm very proud to say, you know, they're 16 and 14. They've never been to the principal's office. They've, They've never come home drunk. You know, they're excelling in school, excelling in sports. And so I guess I'm trying to raise them in the way I wanted to raise the 21 to 34 year olds across the country with Made Possible. I love it. I want to stay on the topic of youth sports and coaching. What's your philosophy on whether kids should stick to their best sport or play multiple sports throughout the year? So I think there's two ways to answer this. I do firmly believe that they should try lots of different sports. In fact, the one thing that we're kind of missing from youth sports in this country, in my opinion, is some sort of organized platform where over a 12-month period, kids can try six different sports. You know, rather than launching into a whole season at five years old of baseball, can it be a month of baseball? Can it be a month of lacrosse? Can it be a month of hockey? Whatever it might be so that they can identify what sports brought them the most joy, what they felt like they were best at. And we don't have that. There might be efforts out there that I don't know of, but that needs to be more organized because then it does allow them to pick eventually a sport that they like the most. Now, having said that, I think the kids should be playing three sports all the way through high school. There's not a single major leaguer. I know I'm very baseball focused, but that's my sport. There's not a single major leaguer in the bigs right now that didn't play at least two or three sports. And they will all say that. In fact, the head coach of my son's baseball team came out and told them he wants them running track in the winter, playing basketball or something else because it just makes you much more well-rounded. I think the stronger opinion I have, and but look, there is a time when if a kid really has something special going or they really are just totally dedicated, the Dustin Pedroia type who is 5'7", but said, I'm going to be a professional baseball player no matter what, it can't stop me, then yeah, focus on baseball. Absolutely. But unless that's the case, I think there's a lot more joy and, and satisfaction from playing multiple sports. I think what's more important about youth sports is when they start. Mm. And this is something that I'm on a soapbox about, and especially dad and moms too, I talk about it. I think you should spend the first like the ages of four to seven or eight not playing youth sports and instead playing those sports with mom and dad in the backyard. Hmm. And for a number of reasons. One, 
it builds a bond that's unbreakable. You can't replace hours and hours and hours on a field with your one kid, two kids, whatever it might be, teaching them everything you know about that sport. And when they show interest in another sport, like my daughter with soccer, I don't even know the names of the positions on a soccer team. Right? So, <laughs> but I do know the proper way to kick a soccer ball. I do know the right way to pass, how to receive one, because I watched hours of European soccer to learn how to do that and then teach her how to do it. You know, And those years are invaluable because if you think about, you can put your child on a team and they might spend two hours a week on that team. And we all know how that looks in soccer. All the kids follow the ball. In baseball, you're hitting off a tee or... You know, some dad throws 52 pitches until you actually make contact with it and take those two hours and one-on-one, whatever you're, I don't care if it was biking, whatever it was, just that to me is invaluable. And then when they get to youth, when they get to a team at eight, they're already much better than the other kids on those teams Mm. and their trajectory, you know, this is the average trajectory. Those kids are coming like this, you know, they're, they get better much quicker. They immediately are recognized for travel teams, which then increases their level of coaching and dedication that they get. That's a big thing for me right now is I just see too much of this throwing a kid on a team and they don't really get much out of it. Now they get some out of it, the social piece and it's fun and sports should always be fun, but I'll tell you from experience, kids have more fun playing sports when they are good at it (laughs) and and when they win. And I know that that's maybe sounds old fashioned, but I see it firsthand. Dugout full of kids who just lost the game is very different than a dugout full of kids who just won a game. And especially if they do well, right? And especially if they had some part in the game. To that point, there's often a big debate in youth sports. Uh, Should a coach their team in order to win or should a coach their team in order to optimized for fun and is it possible to do both yeah what's your take on on this it's, debate it's a really hard question and this, this is another passion point of mine this goes back to what i said earlier about trying to think like the kids think so you've the 12 kids on a baseball team three of them are really good seven of them are pretty good and two of them are terrible mm-hmm. right as a coach number one you've got to get those kids in the game i mean that a, their parents signed up for it. They paid money. They expect to see their kids in the game. And wouldn't you want the kids to be in the game anyway? That, you know, that all kids are born good. The kids are good. You want them to, to have that fun. So yeah. on some level, you have to coach around that a little bit. You know, you mm-hmm. have to find the right positions on the field for them to be involved, but also not to determine the team's fate. You know, so that's like the old classic stick them in right field thing. Well, the truth is right field has now become the most important position in baseball because every game can be determined on one ball by the right fielder, right? And so maybe third base is a better position for them, which doesn't get as much action or, you know, that kind of thing. But they're on the field and they're helping. But the other thing I think people don't realize is that kid doesn't want to be exposed. And so if they're really bad, you know, and I'm being objective here, they don't want to be the one up with the game on the line. They don't yeah. want to be the one that makes the error to lose the team the game. And that's really hard to deal with as parents and, and so forth. But the kids appreciate it. I've had more than enough kids say to me, I don't need to go in right now. I don't need, you know, <laughs> I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. Because again, and then if that team wins, they're part of that team and they're celebrating with the team and all that. That's way better than 
having 10 kids look at you like, oh, my God, you can't catch a fly ball. We lost the game because you couldn't catch a fly ball or all you ever do is strike out. And parents have to take a role here, too. If if you're in your third or fourth season of this sport and it's just clear this kid's not good at it, you probably should think about doing something else. Actually, a really fun story on one of the first teams in Little League that I coached. There was a kid on the team named Andrew, and he showed up to the first practice in corduroys and a golf shirt, right? Oh, boy. <laughs> and, yeah. and my son just kind of looked at me, and I said, I know this is not a baseball player, right? And it proved out that he wasn't a very good baseball player. And a couple things happened there. One, he would come to the practices and stay in the car, and the mom would be trying to drag him out. And I would say to the mom, you know, let him be like, he doesn't want to be out here because it's embarrassing, right? It's, we got all these really good athletes here and he's the one that's not. And when the kids on the team would complain, oh, Andrew's holding us back. I would say to them, I promise you, Andrew's better at something than you're at that thing, right? And lo and behold, with Andrew, a couple of months after that, we went to a school assembly and he sat down at the piano in front of 500 people and blew everyone away. And I looked at my kids and I said, how are you guys at piano? <laughs> <laughs> Not good. I said, yeah. okay, well, if you shut up for piano practice, bang, bang, bang and away, he's probably going to be like, oh, he's terrible at piano, right? There's other talents that these kids might have and stop trying to force the issue and talk to you. Like, do you, do you really want to be going to these games and practices? No, I don't. You know, like yeah. ask them and find out. So coach to win because it brings joy to the group. But also, you have to spend the time developing the kids who aren't very good. You have to separate some time for them to help them. If you have a good assistant coach, you say, okay, you listen, you take these eight guys, kids and I'll take these two today and I'm going to work with them directly and get them better to the next level so that they can be part of the group. Fitting in is everything as a kid, right? And if you help them get better, you'll have a loyal, you know, loyal player for the rest of life. So like, and you walk through town and you hear coach Mike, coach Mike. And, you know, and you look over and it's one of those kids who wasn't very good, who's now better and they'll love you forever. You know, it's a really important thing. I said a lot there, but I have a lot of thoughts on this, on this subject. Yeah. It's so interesting. And, and I love that philosophy. If you're able to put yourself in the shoes of the kids or in sales of the prospect, yes, it's going to exactly. yield so much success. Without uh, a doubt. Yeah. Mike, are you ready for, for the lightning round? I'm ready. It's four questions and we have two minutes to answer all four questions. Okay. All right. So first question, what is your favorite youth sports memory? Favorite youth sports memory, winning, finishing second in the high hurdles relay at Boston University as a junior in high school in the state. Wow. Even though baseball is my number one sport, that was the biggest highlight of my career. I bet your best friend couldn't do that. So you won up. Well, my best friend was on the team. (laughs) Did he get first? So he was on the relay team. And what made it so special for me was I was only 5'7 in high school. And the high hurdles were not something that was meant for me. And I overcame that and became really strong and won or came in second almost every race that season. Wow. Well, you're taller than 5'7 now. When did you now have I a growth am, spurt? I'm only about 5'11, but in college, I was 5'7 when I got there. I didn't start oh, wow. shaving till college. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I looked back at my sixth grade yearbook recently. It said professor of math at Harvard. Wow. Okay? But when I was, a, besides that, that somehow went away. And 
I didn't really have an aspiration. I wish I did. Now that I look back, that was my aspiration. If I had to do all over again, I would have been a teacher and a coach. No doubt about it. You would have been great as you are now. As, as I would have loved to have been a teacher that I really would have. Yeah. What is your go-to cause to support? My go-to cause is, the, is like I said earlier, the development in youth sports, without a doubt, and helping young people, I, mostly men, I have to say. I mean, that's just kind of where I was focused on avoiding the pitfalls of life and to prove, to create their own path and to not allow themselves to be victims of peer pressure that bring them into a vicious cycle. Yeah, I love yeah. that. What do you think is an effective marketing channel for a brand to reach you at the baseball field? Well, listen, what you guys are doing at League Side is really special. And I mean that. And as you know, I mean that because I call you every couple months with a new idea of, of what brands you should be looking at and who needs you the most. Unlike professional sports and even college sports that feel corporate and feel commercial, there is a purity to what you guys are doing. There is parents who struggle to afford youth sports. There is an attention piece. You know, I go to the same Little League field 30 40 times a season, and I'm going to support the brands that support that league. They're, it's just a pure win-win because they're doing more than just buying eyeballs. They're helping young kids have better equipment, be able to play. You know, I've had a lot of financial struggles, especially after the startup, and made possible failed, and, and I lost a lot of money in that. And I, the last thing I want to do was not allow my kids to have the same youth sports experience that I had. And some of it's very expensive, especially travel ball and all that. And the fact that brands can get involved and help subsidize those costs, it means everything, you know, it might not mean everything to kids who are wealthy and can afford everything, but it means a lot to other brands, to lots and lots of other kids. And I do see it as a, as almost like a pure marketing vehicle and what you guys are doing in that space I applaud the heck out of what you're up to. I think it's just a tremendous platform. I really do. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I'm proud of you. Mike, this, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for, for coming on today. This was great. Thank you for having me. I hope I can help. And uh, best of luck to you and Zubin and the whole team. Thank you. All right. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode with Mike Rideout. Mike was incredibly inspirational talking about how to win in sales, how to win in coaching, how to set kids up to have fun and be successful. And most importantly, how important it is to put yourself in the shoes of the kids that you're coaching and also the prospects that you're selling to in order to have success. It was a great show. Thank you all for tuning in. We will see you next time. Play on, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating at leagueside.com slash podcast. For more educational and inspiring content, you can follow Leagueside on LinkedIn and Instagram at leagueside underscore. See you next time.